Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today is a throwback Thursday episode. Excuse my dog, he's walking in the background. Uh, But before we jump in, I wanted to remind you we have an adventure grant going right now. We're going to close the application February 22nd. If you or anyone you know is doing an adventure this year and they need some funding, we're giving away three grants, $1,000, $500, $250-plus gear, and uh, you know it's for anyone doing an adventure in 2023. Have them apply. Uh, we're going to be giving it away to somebody, and you might have a pretty good chance of getting it. I'm just going to say that. So uh, you know, apply, submit what you want to do. And also, uh, this episode is great. I remember this being one of the first episodes I edited, uh, so my editing skills have improved a lot since then. Uh, The sound quality is okay on this one, but I remember Pete being so inspiring because at the time, I was kind of a part-time stay-at-home dad as well, and so I got a lot of inspiration from Pete, and I just loved his name, Pete Ripmaster. Pretty cool. So let's hear this story. So inspiring, so cool, Uh, and let's go ahead and jump in. Hey friends, I have an incredible guy with us today. His name is Peter Ripmaster, and Peter is an ultra-distance runner, but he says he doesn't want to be identified first as just an ultra-distance runner. He wants to be identified as an adventurer first who does ultra-distance running, but when I say ultra-distance, this is going to blow your mind. You remember that little dog sled race up in Alaska that's over a 1,000 miles long? Did you know that people run that too? Now, I'm not talking about a 50-miler or a 100-miler. We're talking about a 1,000-mile run. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kurt, for having me. (laughs) I tell you what, when I first heard that people run the Iditarod, (laughs) I was blown away. So I just, well, let's let's rewind just a little bit. We're going to get back to the Iditarod, Peter, but let's find out who you are, okay? So Asheville, North Carolina, that's where you live with your wife and two girls. Yes. You are... Also, a public speaker. What else would you like to tell us about yourself? I've always just been an outdoorsman. I mean, I honestly think, you know, adventure, outdoorsman, I don't worry too much about titles of what of what things is. I just love being out in the woods. Before I did any running or, or ultras or anything like that, it was about mountaineering and rock climbing and telemark skiing and ice climbing and just any pursuit that you can be out in the woods, I'm all about. And I'm also an advocate for other people to do whatever gets them off the couch. Nice. And, well, you live in the right place if you like those sorts of sports. Asheville, North Carolina, pretty nice. We're, we're trying to be quiet about that, you know, um, <laughs> it, 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 as much as we humanly can because it's it's pretty special place. But, yeah, my wife and I have been here for about a dozen years, and, boy, it's home. After spending all types of time out west and up north, I just never would, would guess that North Carolina would be my home. But these mountains and and Asheville are just, it's just a great, great place to live and very diverse place. And I'm happy here. Mm, that's neat. So how did you first get into the idea of doing a long run? I got into running first and foremost to raise money for cancer research. After losing my mom, I lost my mom to breast cancer in 2000 and went through a bunch of difficult years after that where running distance races was the furthest thing from my mind. I just went through some dark times, 
And then when I got, when I met my wife and I kind of got back on my two feet, I realized that I wanted to do something big to raise money. So I started running marathons and I ended up running 50 marathons in 50 states. And that kind of like, you know, started thinking. And then towards the end of that project, I just wanted to think if I could go further and further and further, like you hear a lot of people talk about, I always wanted to press a little bit further just to see where that line is of what's possible. And so ultimately it led to Alaska. Um, But, you know, there's many, many stories before that as well. Wow. So you've been doing this for a while. How long have you been doing these big runs? Uh, I have been running for a decade of my life, but like I said, there was probably a decade before that, uh, a lot of pursuits outside. I lived out in Telluride, Colorado for many, many years and explored all those mountains around there and and just uh, had a a ton of fun in the mountains before I – and then, again, when I started running, it wasn't necessarily that I adored it. I just was raising money for for research. And then as it kind of whittled away, I realized that it was really good for me. And, and also, it was really good for – I've dealt with depression my whole life, and I found that running – it was a really good outlet for me to feel comfortable and to think through things and just have some quiet time with myself. And so it was kind of a spiritual component to my door activities as well. Well, do you mind if we dive into that a little bit? I'd like to hear more. Do you think it's just, is it just the time alone that helped with, you know, sorting things out? Or do you think it's the exercise as well? I mean, what do you think makes that makes that work for you? I think, you know, when I put myself into a position where I'm actually, where I'm able to go out and do something for a, a, an extended period of time, I find that as I get further along that process, my mind becomes simpler and I feel more content with what's going on inside of my brain and going on inside of my body. So it, it helps me to kind of remember what's important in life and not get caught up in the things that sometimes can sidetrack you in life. It makes me go out to these places and have these quiet internal dialogue where I just kind of cement what I feel, what I want my life to be like, you know, what what type of people I want to associate with. You know, I just, I'm a deep thinker. And so I go out there just to really find some peace that it's hard for me to find in just day-to-day life. I, I'll be honest with that. Mm. I like that. It, well, it's a it's a wonderfully healthy way to combat depression. I would say, <laughs> you know, I, I would say too. I so, trust me. I tried numerous other things, and I found this to be the most. Now, are there people that probably take it too far, and 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 it's probably not the healthiest thing? Well, sure, of course. But at the same time, you know, the vast majority of folks would probably be doing something else to a really nth degree if not for running. So I look at that as a, as a healthy alternative to some of the other things that aren't necessarily healthy for you. Right. Well, you know, I have learned about myself. Now, I'm not an ultra-distance runner. I could never uh-huh. claim that title. Wouldn't work. But sure. um, I have found about myself, I have to get out. And what I mean by yeah. that is I need to be outside and moving somehow. So, you know, we climb 14ers and we do a lot of mountain yeah. biking and backpacking and Whatever other event, you know, it, maybe it's canoeing down a river, but I have to be out and active. And if I don't do that regularly, then, man, I start to slip into the doldrums. You know what I mean? Yes. So you understand. And, that, and I'm no different than you in that way. I, that's exactly how I am. In fact, my wife will sometimes just go, please go out on a run. 
you know, <laughs> please go, you know, or please go do a race this weekend. You know, she just finds, I, you know, the, the patience isn't where it needs to be. And I just, I, I get out and I kind of feel like you get out there and you just kind of remember who you were supposed to be. And, and you kind of feel like that's the only way I can feel childlike in this life. You know, like mm. when I'm turning a bend in a canoe and I don't know what's around the corner, I have anticipation and I have an excitement that I vividly remember having when I was a kid exploring and doing new things. And so, like I said, in day-to-day life, when you're running around and you're dealing with insurance and taxes and, you know, and, and traffic and tickets and all these things, it's this beautiful time for me where I'm just like, okay, this is who I am. I can deal with this other stuff if I can sneak out and do this. And so I'm just, I'm just right there with you. And I'm glad you understand that. And I'm sure a lot of people do. And I don't care whether you hike or bike or run ultras. I, it's, again, I don't look at titles. You know, people that get outside, I, I'm, I'm fired up by. Right. Do you prefer Pete or Peter? I like Pete. My mom called me Peter. She's not around anymore. She loves, she's like, I named you Peter. I didn't name you Pete. If I wanted you to <laughs> be named, you know, people to call you Pete, I would have named you Pete. But like, you know, she's not around and I always like Pete better. So let's take Pete. All right. Know. Well, Pete. Um, I don't know if you know much about this or not, but I've I've heard it, and I would be curious what your opinion is. I have heard people, Pete, say that when people use adventure sports to feel good, like we're talking about right now, that that may or may not last, or they have to keep doing the sport for it to work. And then they say, what you really need to do is like meditate more, or pray more, or... Maybe what you really need to do is to learn how to focus on being in the now and being fully present all the time. And I, I kind of hesitate, you know, <laughs> because I'm like, well, if it works, it works. But what's your perspective on that? I agree with that. A thousand, I mean, in fact, we haven't even talked about the Iditarod, but the thousand mile race that I went through was a testament to that, to meditation, to quieting your brain, you know, because in general, I have what's good. now understand, and you can all, probably already tell. There's a lot going on with me, right? There's a lot of angles. There's a lot of thinking going on, and and so it probably wouldn't shock you to know that I have a psychologist that I've worked with for years here in Asheville, who's a dear friend of mine at this point. But he helps me, and and he's quick to point out, and and I've been working on this for a long time now. That when I first started seeing him, I was a professional at beating myself up over over things that have happened in my past or, or, or things I wish I didn't do or, or things I, I wish I would have taken a different road or, or looking back and just having anguish. Or if I'm not in that world, I'm in this world that I want to be way over here and I want to do this, but to get here, I have to do this, 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 and I'm planning, and I'm planning for years down the line. So I was a professional at either being – 10 years behind me or 10 years in front of me without <laughs> any inkling to this second. Oh, right man. Now. Yeah. I and hear so, you. Like, it was an epiphany. I, and like, I've been listening to like these spiritual teachers and like Eckhart Tolle and a few other folks about uh, just what we're talking about, but it never quite resonated with me until this year on the Iditarod trail where, where I was, Stripped away from all ego, you know, because I'm just out there by myself and there's just nothing. You just have yourself. And then all of a sudden I started listening to these, you know, my spirituality and and my Christianity and then listening to these spiritual teachers. And then all of a sudden thinking, 
wow, like, like it opened up a door to the present to me that had been dormant for decades. And it's like, it's, it's opened up my life to, and my wife will tell you it's changed me as a person since I've been home. And it's not like I'm that, you know, it's not like I'm there. I still find myself getting sucked in uh, and thinking, but it's like, once I go down those other roads, I don't go down them too far before I realize, Hey, get back to now. You know, I, I, I sense myself going one way or the other, and I just say, okay, back to your breath, back to where you are and who you're around this second, rather than thinking of it as a springboard to any, <laughs> you know, yeah, you probably opened up a can of worms asking that question because it's like, see, this is what I want to talk about. Like, this is it for me. Like, we could, <laughs> you know, I, I would rather talk about this than the hard details of the I did ride 10 times. I, I, you know, I mean, this is just the, the stuff that transcends sports and transcends the humanness of, of this. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that statement. And that, and that's why I, and all along, I didn't know what I was searching for through all those marathons and all those ultras and all those wilderness treks. And then it just all came together to be like, that's what I was searching for. That's what I needed to get to. It's just now. Isn't that something? You it know, is. that's, it's, it it's such is. a, the, the thing that's hardest to grasp is the easiest thing of all, sometimes. I know. And, and to think I went so long where it's, and I call it having monkey mind, where I was just attached to every thought that went through my brain and I had to chase it down the trail and see where it fit in. And, and I just, it, it's just like a weight lifted off my shoulders once it all came together to where it's just like all you have is now. That's really all you have control over, you know, and so it just kind of, you know, as you can see, I'm pretty freewheeling. I'm just more comfortable with who you are in your own skin. You know, you're just like, I am who I am right now, and, and I might change, and I might still mess up, but I, it's been the best thing in my life and transcends the I did rock for sure. Well, there's several thousand people that just heard you say that, and I think that that's a beautiful testimony. Yeah, there's a reason for the Adventure Sports Podcast. It, it wasn't just for the sports or the fun, you know, certainly not for hedonism. The reason we started this show is because we believe that people like yourself who go out and do these things, you know, you've been up the mountain, you're coming back down, and you're sharing it with the rest of us. How about that? I, absolutely. And I think we all have our mountain. I'm not going to lie. I truly believe that we all have our mountain that we're trying to climb and and see the other side of. So, you know, we need inspiration from each other through this process, you know, and, and Lord knows I've had inspiration by thousands of people be, before me. So as I just look at, at myself, as just, just like anyone else who's strapping on a backpack or, or putting a canoe on top of their, you know, I'm just, I'm no different. I just, I don't feel myself different with anyone in that realm because I, I do look at it as that's what we're all trying to find out there. And, and luckily we still have places that are wild enough to where we can get away. We can find those, those things in those places. Oh yeah. Well, let's dive into your, your 50 marathons in 50 States just a little bit. Now were these, sure. um, uh, official events where you were in races or were these events that you set up where you said, I'm going to run my 26 miles on Tuesday? Ultimately, I wish that would have been the way I would have done it because I really got burnt out on the race scenario. You know, I would have rather just go to some trailhead and you go run 26.2 miles in that state. But when I was going through it, I was really type A about it. And, um, and I was running marathons. I will tell you that 
uh, and you'll understand this, like, you know, I started out, and it's funny, if you look, I have this board that's got all the marathons I've run, and it's got all the medals and stuff, and you look at how it started, and it's like all these big city marathons, and then very quickly, you see them start to become just very smaller cities, to towns, to podunk marathons, where there's (laughs) hardly anybody there, because that was what I was about, you know, after... I very quickly realized I didn't like running in big crowds and I didn't, I didn't need a lot of people around me and I didn't necessarily need big medals when I was finished. I just, again, was after the experience. And so I was just like finding these really one-off cool marathons where, you know, where it was just like you could stay at the host hotel and it's right across the street from the start line. And then you can, you you can finish and take a shower and you don't have to take taxis. And so, it went from city to rural pretty quickly in, in the, in the 50 States, but it was, uh, and then, like I said, that those kind of led to running longer distances towards the end of those. Cause I was just like, these are getting old. I can do these, you know, with my eyes closed, you know, it's mm. just, it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm pressing too much. To, to, now I'm not saying they were all fast. Like, I mean, a lot of them were just grunts, right. But I just knew I could get through them by hiking or jogging if I had to and all that. So it's, um, yeah, it was, it was, I raised $62,000 for cancer research by doing the 50 marathons in 50 states. And so that was, uh, that was a promise to my mom that I, I made good on. So that, that was a big part of that process. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, yeah, we're, I'm going to just go, since we're talking about the psychology side of things a little bit, I'm going to yeah. stay there just a little bit. So you raised $62,000 for cancer research, and that's a beautiful thing. People would applaud you for that, right? Yeah. Um, did that lead to some sort of self-actualization and fulfillment long-term for you personally? Uh, you know, I, that's a, damn, that's a good question. I don't often have to take some time to think about an answer. Usually I'm, I'm pretty versed in, in these. Um, that made me realize that, uh, I loved raising money for a good cause, but, um, he, all right, I'll, I'll tell you like this, because you have to understand this about the, the process. So I raised $62,000 for Komen, right? Komen, uh, as everyone knows, it's the number one huge uh, place that raises money and funds for breast cancer research. Now, I raised $62,000. Well, I'll tell you, I had no idea where that money went. I had no idea if that money was going to help people or if that money was being you know, spent towards $62,000 worth of pink balloons that we're going to put all over cities that we go. I just, I, <laughs> it, it, and, and that frustrated me, right? you know, and it was great. And I loved raising that money, but kind of having an epiphany towards the end of that, that like, I want to raise money on a much more local level. Um, I want to make an impact where I live because I just feel it more important than thinking on this global level. I, I, I think it's more important that a lot of people dig into where they're living. And so I started raising money for a local nonprofit, which is just like where the rubber meets the road. Like yeah. they're really doing a really good work. And you're seeing $500 that you raise is taking care of one lady in Western North Carolina for an entire year through their program. And so you're like, well, yes, I need to do this. Like, this is how I want to raise money. And then you see that money going to work in your own, and you have fulfillment there. I did not have fulfillment watching the money just go to some huge corporation where I lost track of how it affected people. So that I had to put that, you know, that's important for me personally. Do I have something wrong with Coleman? Absolutely not. 
right? You have to understand that. But for me on a personal level, I didn't find fulfillment until I saw it making a difference. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Mm, so that's that's kind of what I was getting at, and I'm really glad you made that distinction. Now, I say this. I think we need to continue to support the big research foundations as well. I mean, it's it's got to happen. But that said, isn't there something wonderful about when you contribute to a cause, you can see the impact. You get the feedback. You know what I mean? Well, you know, you can... I mean, I've been in situations where I've met some of these ladies that have been affected by what, you know, by what I've done and what I've raised. And and to me, it, again, yes, I totally agree that... And I feel like if more of us did that, we would be better off globally because a lot of us were taken care of locally. And that looks yeah. better all the way around. I, you know, I just feel like in a, it, it's the same kind of thing when people go, oh, I want to do service work, so I, I got to go to Africa. Well, it's like, no, go to Cleveland. You know what I mean? Go to, <laughs> right. go, to De- go to Detroit. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't always need to be this extreme thing to, you know, to, to raise money on this big level. I just, I, I'm an advocate for, for grassroots organizations and, and really making an impact locally. So, um, cool. yeah, that's, that's kind of what, what that, all that money, um, I'm glad it probably did do a lot of work, but it kind of was a learning experience for me to realize that I wanted to go about things in a different way. And I've raised some good money since then for this hope chest in Asheville, which is just a very small, five or one C three, you know, just teeny here in Asheville, but they do good work and, and that's who I'm I'm stuck with now. So it's well, right great. On. Right on. Well, you know, I want to get to the Iditarod, but I'm trying to piece together the journey that led you there a little bit. Um we've already talked about the fifty marathons of fifty states. I mean obviously every marathon has its own story, right? But let's do this. Could you give us a highlight an experience that was really positive that came out of those 50 marathons. And then also give us a a story second about when something didn't go right. It was just really, really killer in those 50 marathons. And then, then we'll move on to the Iditarod. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Um, As far as like a really awesome story, I would say, you know, I told you I was running all these city marathons. But, you know, before that time, I had all this outdoor experience in the mountains, right? But but here I am running these city marathons. And then I'm going out to Oregon. And there's not, at the time, there wasn't a ton of marathons in Oregon. So you had your choice of maybe five or six or something like that. Now, I needed to do Oregon in a certain amount. of. I, I was going out west. I wanted to knock this out. So I had to look at a certain period of time. Well, there was a trail marathon. Uh, it was called Holland Aspen. I love the name of it. And, um and it was a trail marathon in Bend, Oregon. And I ran it with one of my best friends. I used to have friends come join me at the marathons, and I'd hang out with them for the weekend, and we'd run a race. But we ran this trail marathon, and we were about halfway through the race, just running through these big, pretty spruce trees, you know, just very northwest-type trees, and just thinking, wow, feeling like kids. And I just remember thinking, what in the hell have I been doing with all these city marathons like this? Because it was just this epiphany. Like, <laughs> I don't, 
ever want to run one of those city marathons again, ever. I mean, I don't, those don't do anything for me. And then, and then, and then after that, you can kind of see how that, like the trail and ultra stuff started organically growing in me because I was just like this seed hit me when I first ran. Now that was probably 30 marathons into the project. Right. So it was just, it needed to be on its own time. And, and so that was, that was a really fun epiphany moment for me. And then a lot of fun trail marathons came after that. So that was kind of where I found my traction. And then as, as far as uh, bad experiences, I'll tell you one, um, I was running the trail marathon in New Jersey. And it, I, I remember it being the middle of winter. I think it was January in New Jersey. It was this loop course and there were not many people out there. And, here I was, I was like 17 miles of the way through uh, the race. And I knew the course because it was a loop. So I knew kind of what you had to do. And I knew in my heart that here I was at this tiny junction where if I would have just taken a quick right, um, I could have jumped on the trail and probably got ridden of like, like three or four miles of the trail. And there was no one between me and you know, there's no one in front of me or behind me that would have ever known what I was doing. And I'm telling you, Kurt, I sat there for a second and I was like, and I looked, <laughs> I looked on that dang road. I mean, I looked at it, you know, and I was like, everything in me, because it was nasty weather, it was raining. I was in New Jersey, which to me was not the most, you know, stunningly beautiful state I've ever been in. And, and I'm just trying to get through this and I see this little corner I could cut. And I just remember vividly thinking that that looks very enticing and intriguing to me. And then I thought to myself, the very next thought that came through my mind was, hey, Pete, how great would you feel if all of a sudden you finished 50 marathons in 50 states and you, and you raised $62,000 in cancer research, but all the while you know in the bottom of your heart that you cheated on one of them. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, and, and just like <laughs> as fast as I looked down that trail, I just, turned left and went and looped around those few miles and just realized that like I had some integrity and there was, you know, it, it was like, it was just one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I'm in it for the right reasons because if I'm not, then I cheat and I get through it and nobody knows. And I go on with my life and I, I you know, fool. Every, but it was just one of those moments where I'm like, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to do this the right way. And so it was, uh, it was it was a, another cool moment, and I would say a positive moment that kind of came from a negative moment, if you will. And I think a lot of people would uh, probably wouldn't admit that they looked down that road, but dang, I took a nice long gander down that little connector <laughs> trail there. You know. Well, sometimes the shortcuts are not shortcuts. Can you imagine having to deal with that? Thinking, oh, waking up in the middle of the night. I never finished that one. I never finished that. I one. know. <laughs> I know. And you're just like, why? Like, what was the point, right? Like you got done a half hour earlier so you could get back to your hotel room to do what? To watch sports center. You know, it's just like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. So that was, it was cool. It was like a certifiable, legit 50 marathons of 50 states. And, and I was happy, you know, and, and at certain points it felt like the biggest thing in the world to be in the middle of, but now I look back on it and I'm like, well, that's, that's cute you know one marathon a month and and you know with seven aid stations and you know it's just i've, I've been through some de darker deeper places now and so it, it's kind of uh it, it's like i look back and i'm like yeah that's that's pretty cool but not not certainly not anything that's uh 
really super deep or anything. Just kind of <laughs> just kind of knocking it out to raise some money, you know. Well, I already said the Adventure Sports Podcast is not just about adventure sports and fun, right? We learn right. something about ourselves when we do these things, don't we? Yes, yes. Whether you're an elite or you're a back of the packer or the middle of the packer, we all have similar experiences, and we're all searching for similar things. So it's just like I love my tribe of outdoor people, I, and, and you're right there. You know, just an awesome group of people that are regularly told they can't do things or, or you know, you shouldn't. And just find ways to have that mental fortitude to go out and keep keep being outside and keep progressing. And you know, in a world where everyone tells you that you got to sit inside and you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to get beat up and you got to be this and that, it's just like I, I know who my people are. You know, it's it's a, it's a great. I love the outdoor sports world. It's awesome. Mm, that's cool. So you did your 50 marathons in 50 states, and then you realized that you preferred the smaller towns, and then you realized you preferred the trail running, and yep. then this started leading to ultra marathons, ultra distance runs. Right. Well, just right. before we dive into the ultras, I'm curious, you had done so much running, you're obviously in great shape, when you switched to being on trails instead of on the asphalt then did you have to change your training technique or your running technique? How was that different? First of all, I, I think I have a, I'm not going to say pretty strong, I have a very strong mind. Sometimes I can get away with not being the most trained person by just being the most dogged person and the person that refuses to give up. So I feel right. I have that in spades. But as far as like if you went to downtown Asheville, you could very easily get a hundred people that run more than me and, and, and train harder than me. And, and again, like this is important to me, but it's not my life. Like I'm a stay at home dad. I have a wife. I have my faith. I have other sports I enjoy doing. So I, I get my kicks a lot of different ways. But like you, just as long as it's out, outside, I'm good. I just started getting further and further because I was interested in kind of seeing like, you know, uh, what I could do, those marathons, I know I can do those, okay? That, and, and so, like, doing them repetitively is not proving anything new to me. And right. so I just, it was just a very natural progression to me to start running the, the distances. But I was good because, you know, a lot of people mess up and they try and run long distances too fast. So I really, like, took my baby steps building up to each distance that I ran, except for the thousand. <laughs> <laughs> except for the thousand i i mean yeah. good grief how can you even go there i mean when people say oh i ran a thousand miles what it just that yeah that's mind-boggling you know so you mentioned before i hit record here that on the <laughs> iditarod uh there's a 350 mile run and then there's the thousand mile run and so you worked your way first by doing the the 350 and then work your way on up. You've got to you've got to walk us through that a little bit. How did that all transpire? I thought when I was running all these marathons and ultras that you know I started and and I love looking back at this time because I was I feel like talking about myself six years ago is like it's like a lifetime ago in certain regards because I've just I'm on this path you know and so it's like I look back to that time when I thought that because I had run all these marathons and I finished all these ultras that I somehow deserve to go and do this huge Iditarod Trail Invitational. I, it cracked me up because I wrote this impassionate letter to the race director after I heard about it, just like you did. I read an article. I'm like, what is this? Are you kidding me? People do this? 
I'd lo- I would love to. I have to do this. I was. I, there's, there's no other way I can live my life without doing this race. And and so I I contacted the race director, like by via email. Like when I want something, I'm a bulldog, right? So I just went right to the source. Right as the race was going on, I was emailing back and forth with the race director, telling him that I and and in so many words, he was like, "Man, your 50 marathons don't mean shit." up here i'm just gonna throw that out there you know he's like he's like that does not equal any any preparedness for coming to do the i did rod in the middle of winter i just want you to know that but by the way i wrote my letter he could tell that i was totally old school like i was real romantic i was like i will appreciate all the times i have on the trail whether it's great or bad and you know just like really cheesy and romantic about it but he took it for what it was which was an honest plea and he's like you need to come up and do this race so like 10 minutes after i heard about it i was invited the following year to come do it and so uh i go up my first year and it's just i cannot tell you how over my head i was i mean i tell people regularly my first year i got last place i love saying that because my first 350 mile race in 2014 there were 12 finishers in the 350-mile race. I was 12. I had a 92-pound sled that I hauled. Oh. The winner had a 16-pound the, the sled. They say your first year on the Iditarod Trail, you pack all your insecurities with you. Right. Well, I packed 92 pounds of insecurities into my sled that I hauled. I got lost 25 miles the first day. And I blistered my feet toe to heel the second day. So within 48 hours, I had made all those mistakes and pretty much wanted to tuck tail and get back to Carolina and just admit that I just was way in over my head. But because of who I am and because of my genes, I turned my back and fought north and made my way another 330 miles by myself because everyone else was all the way in front of the, the race at this point with me getting lost and having to find my way back. So that was my first year. <laughs> wow. So I love I love saying that because I don't want people to ever hear a podcast with me and go, oh, yeah, Pete won the Iditarod in 26 days, and, and he's the Iditarod champ. Well, yes, I am, but I also was last place in the Iditarod. So don't think it's this glorious thing. I mean, I, I had to put all my effort into learning and regrouping many, 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 many times. So it's been a, a big path. Second year, I did third place. I got three. Um, and it, it, my first year was 10 and a half days. My second year was six and a half days. So 12th place to third place in one year, just because I trained and I learned. I was realistic with what I needed to learn, and I did that. I didn't need anyone to coach me or tell me. I just went about the business of, of learning to be more efficient. And then I thought I was ready for the 1,000-mile race. And so in 2016, I tried my first thousand mile. I did ride and, uh, had a two, uh, 200 miles into the race. I had a terrible accident where I fell. I was walking over a, a, a river that was open underneath, but it had ice on top of it. And I fell through the ice into open water that was trying to rush me under the, the oh. glacier. So it was, yeah. Yeah, it was a near-death experience on the Iditarod Trail in 2016 for me. I've, I'm probably, I've probably come closer to death than anybody else in the Iditarod ever, regardless <laughs> of whether it's a sled dog race or human-powered race. And so it was, it was 
and I went 300 more miles after the accident because I was not hurt, but my mentally I was hurt, I was flustered, and I got 300 more miles and quit halfway through the race that year because I just didn't have it. I did not have another 500 miles in me. I got to the Yukon River, I was like, I'm out. I'm flying yeah. home, which led to la- last year, which another, I call it a failure. I survived. I got through minus 60 on the trail. Mm. Uh, we dealt with minus 60 on the trail last year, and, and only four people finished the 350-mile race, which I was one of, but no one went on to Nome after that. So that's two straight years of failure, you know, not reaching my goal when I told you all along that that's what I've been doing all along. So this is finally like, you know, I, I wanted to find something that punched back. Well, here it is. And so I went back this year and I considered it like I, you know, like I told you, I was good at ball sports growing up. I figured I was a baseball player and I had two strikes against me. And that's the mentality I took to this year. Like I'm going to finish this thing. I'm not striking out. And that's what led to the success I had this year, which was winning the Iditarod. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations. (laughs) And I just, man, I'd love to hear more about that experience. So Boy, where to start? Um, let's come back to this year later, because I want to I want to yeah, talk okay, more yeah. about how yeah. that felt. But we need the details about a lot of stuff to go with this. But I can't let that just hang there where you fell through the ice into the, the yeah. fast moving river. Um, give us that story in detail, because I got to hear about that. That's that's crazy. All right. I'm well versed in the story. It's like, you know, when I start telling it, I sometimes get bumps on my arms and I sometimes get emotional because it's just an emotional part of my life. It's, I, I vividly remember everything about it. And so I'm not going to take a half hour to explain it. I'll just kind of go over the details. But more or less, I would came down off uh, Rainy Pass, which is the highest point in the Iditarod. And so you're going up over the same mountain range that Denali is in. And then you're coming down over the other side and you're going into the most dangerous section of trail on the entire Iditarod Trail. So during the 1,000-mile race, this four-mile stretch of river, the Tatina River, is the most dangerous section. Everyone knows it. Everyone has felt super sketched. And, w- and, and the reason why is there's always open water. It doesn't uh-huh. matter if it's 40 below zero. There's always rushing water that you hear, that you see. And you're on little, like a, almost like a snowmobile track. Like you're following other people's tracks that kind of circumnavigate these open waters. And so, and also we're a week before the sled dog. Now when the sled dogs, like a couple days before the sled dog race happens, people go and they fix the trail and they make sure it's in bomber shape and nothing would ever happen. But we're going a week before the trail. So we're kind of, uh, you know, we're just going at it like it's just like any other day. No one's been really looking after the trail. So I was going into this dangerous, most dangerous section. I was by myself. It was getting to the, the sun had gone down. It was getting to be evening. I had promised myself that if I get into a situation that I don't feel comfortable, I'm just going to sit down, make a fire, and I'm going to wait for the next person to come up behind me. And then we're going to go and do the section together. So at least there's a hope of rescue if something were to happen. But I was three miles, three and a half miles-ish from the checkpoint that I knew was there. And all of a sudden, I was in this place where I just stood at the uh, before I went up and over this river where there's ice on top of it. 
And I just thought to myself, this looks like the most dangerous place I've ever been in in my entire life. It just had this eerie feeling to it. And I just stopped. And, and, and that says enough in itself that I stopped on the trail just to, just to kind of take stock of what the situation was. And so I, I looked, and if I were to just keep going straight, now, the, the trail goes, and then it goes into open water. It looks like the open water is about thigh deep. So I would have to pull up my waders that I have in my sled and then prop, may or may not have water going over the waders as I'm crossing over that water. And I just was, you know, I wanted to get to the checkpoint, tired, hungry, sick, tired, everything you'd think I was. And everything in me was just like, just keep moving. Like, I, it was almost impossible for me to stop, even though I knew it was dangerous. Well, I looked right for a different place to go because I didn't want to go straight. I looked right. That looked 10 times more dangerous than straight. Then I look left, and I see one set of tracks that goes up and left over the river. And then I look at the, the, the marks, the snowshoe marks, hit back up with the trail. And so I was like, well, there it is. That's the route I need to take. But I, I, I saw it to be a little thinner than the main trail, and so I was doing this whole where I had my trekking pole and I was trying to make it fail. If you under, you know, I'm oh, trying yeah. to You're hit punching it, as hard it as I in can. front of yourself. I'm punching it and I'm punching it and I'm punching it. And every time I punch it and feel it thick, I take another step and I'm punching it until I make it fail so I can step back. Well, as I was doing that, I got to about the midpoint of the river and this was a pretty wide river. And, and just before I could almost blink, there was a hundred percent failure with the bridge I was standing on. And so everything swept under my feet and I, luckily I got one last breath before I went underwater, but all of a sudden I'm underwater and water's moving sideways to try and take me under the ice. And so I'm getting back up. I, I, I get back up, which some people never do to the surface. I get back up to the surface and then I'm just, wailing i mean i've caught like shocked and and everything and my adrenaline and all that and so i'm trying to crawl out of the ice that i fell in but every time i try and crawl out i fracture another piece of ice and i'm back swimming where i was and so it's uh. just numerous attempts at trying to get out of the river that i almost gave my life to and then finally and i tell people that it was the only way i can explain it was almost as if you've seen footage of like a walrus and how a walrus like breaches ice, like they just get a little bit of their body on and then they're like just wiggling and trying to get more of it on. And I think finally I was just able to get enough uh, mass onto the ice where I was able to wiggle everything. Now, granted my sled is behind me and, and ice and it's in water and, but I get out of that, but very quickly realize that, okay, I got out, but now I'm freezing, you know, now right. I'm, now I'm in temperatures of probably zero degrees i have a sheet of ice over everything on my out on my outer shell but i realize that my inner like my my base layers are just wet they're saturated but they're not frozen so my outside layers were frozen but my my base layers were just wet and so like almost right away i made the decision that i'm just gonna run to make it to the checkpoint and so once i got out got my my wits about me I just took off. Now I was going over dangerous spots again, but I was just, I was running. I was literally running to stay warm until I got to the next checkpoint. And then I go in and all hell breaks loose. You know, it's like next thing you know, the news is wanting interviews and whatnot, and, <laughs> and, and trying to follow me down the trail and all this. And I'm just like, 
no, I'm trying to sneak away from not having to do any of that stuff, but I get back on the trail. And like I said, just getting through that was just too much for me to get, to keep going. I, I mean, I, I can't, I look back on that. I cannot freaking believe I went another 300 miles after that, but I did. And then I quit. And I just, like I said, that was that. I mean, it was just, it, it rocked me uh, how close I was. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, that is scary stuff, man. That would not be a fun experience at all. It's an amazing thing to listen to, but to think about you in that extreme cold and trying to claw your way out of the ice as it keeps breaking, you've got a current there hypothermia setting in and you did the right thing i don't think yeah under the circumstances i don't see how you could have gotten warm again had you not just kept running i think that that's probably what saved your life yeah no exactly i mean i had to um i am so glad because like i've talked to a lot of friends that have a lot more experience in alaska backcountry than i do and they look back and they say pete you made every single right decision in dealing with that situation and that's why they that's why they wanted me back. That's why, because they realized that it was fluky what happened, but I made, I self-rescued and I got right. myself out of the, the, the situation by making sound judgment calls. If I would have were to make a fire, I would have had to taken a, a huge knife and just cut my sled open because it had an inch of ice around it. You know right. what I mean? So it's just, and then you're just dumping fuel and probably burning just clothes that you have i mean it's just so i made the right decision and and uh that was the scariest moment of my life to say the very least um it's not the only time i've been close but it it was by far the closest i've ever been to passing away and so it's uh it took a lot for me to get back up there the next year you know my wife was a big part of that helping me to wrap my head around the experience and and you know coming to talk to my girls and tell them that daddy's going back and stuff so it's uh yeah, man, I've, I've, I'm pretty vested in this Iditarod race, man. It's, Boy, it's a, I guess. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty uh, pretty cool story all the way through, especially that I'm sitting here pinching myself looking at, you know, trees moving and things. I'm alive. It's beautiful. Right. <laughs> well, for the listeners, yeah. I want to throw out there, if you had another person there and you had to dry sleeping bag and you could have gotten out of those wet clothes and shared a sleeping bag, that would have been the second way to save your life. Yeah. You know, and I want everyone to know that because that would be probably the first protocol. But because you were alone and everything's wet and iced, um, I I think what you did is probably what kept you alive. I don't I don't know that you would have ever gotten warm enough, you know. No, I don't think so. I I, I don't think so. You know, and um, and it's funny because at that point, like the last two years, um, I've had a sat phone and I didn't that year. So even if I would have had you know gotten out and uh, i couldn't have called anyone to come get me i literally would have had to wait for and who knows i i had no idea how close the next person was behind me they could be 20 miles behind me there's no guarantees that someone's coming up behind you to help you especially out in the middle of alaska right um yeah i was happy and and that was a big big building block to having the confidence to that you know knowing knowing that you made sound decisions and getting through it made me feel that I could go back and, and probably do the same thing if something else came up. And, and then of course the next year something else does come up and I deal with 
you know, getting through minus 60. And not, when I say minus 60, I'm saying you're traveling when it's minus 60. Like you're heading no, into the north wind and minus 60 Ooh. below and you're going 30 miles, 30 miles to the next checkpoint and you know you're not stopping. And so that's, that's as committed as it gets. And um, people will say, are their races tougher than the Iditarod Trail Invitational? No. <laughs> because of the weather factor because of the weather factor that's the granddaddy huh? tough races yeah, yeah i in, in my opinion yes i don't think i mean because the stakes are so high you know right. that's to me that's that's why it's so tough well let's talk about the success now the the thousand mile race that you completed and won um walk us through that story a little bit and we i want to know also about the routine of it what a day is like Absolutely. I've probably done roughly over 2,000 miles on the Iditarod Trail in my life. And so I've many, many days. And so I, a day in the life of the Iditarod Trail Invitational is half of the time you can get to checkpoints and you can get, you know, you can get into a lodge and you can get food and shelter and water and you can have all those things. And it's great. And you and so sometimes you wake up and you're in a bed and you, there's a roof over your head. And there's uh, food that you can buy, and there's, you know, all these uh, plugs for your electronics. That's half of the time. Half of the time, you're waking up on the side of the Iditarod Trail, and it's 25 below, and you're 41 years old, and your back's hurt, and you wake up, and you have to go to the bathroom, and you realize that you have to put all your stuff away in the back into your sled as fast as you can, and you can't use your hands because it's so cold. So you have to wear your gloves. But then when, when things happen where you have to use your fingers and have the dexterity, well, you, you, you do those things for 10 seconds, and then you put your gloves on, warm them back up. Then you work, take them back off, and you work on it. And so anything you do is just hard. And so mornings are brutal getting up on the trail. Obviously, if you're in a, in a checkpoint, it's much different. But most of the time, you find yourself on the trail. So you get up, and really you just get going as fast as you can. Like I'd like to think that you stay and you make a – mountain house meal and you make a breakfast and you go to the bathroom and you stretch and it's nothing like that because it's so cold you know you're like shaking waking up like oh my gosh i gotta get going i gotta get going i gotta move so i can warm myself mm, wow and so you're just throwing all your stuff into your sled doesn't matter how it goes in there just you need to get it in there and get get moving and then you turn your back and you put your harness on and you start hauling your sled down the trail and for me, my style is just to go. I'll haul two uh, chalk, like rock climbing chalk bags off of my harness, and I'll fill those chalk bags with a bunch of bars and, and you know, and beef jerky and peanuts and trail mix and, and, and all this stuff that you would think on trails that you'd eat. And then I'd fill those up, and I'd, I'd have a bladder of water on my back that I've kept on my back all night so it's not frozen. And then so I like I get all that ready and then I'm gone. So I might not stop again for the next 10 hours. Mm. And so I'm just like I'm just burning down the trail. Um, I'm not running. I, I'm hauling a 40 pound sled behind me. Um, so I call it power hiking. And what that means, more people will understand if I talk in, this, in these terms. If I can get to four miles an hour, I am flying. Like yeah. I feel like I'm really efficiently moving. And that's 15 minute miles. Now, most of the time, I'm not there. You know, most of the time, it's more like 20-minute miles, so three miles an hour. Sometimes it's 0.2 miles per hour because right. you're in a two feet of snow. 
But, you know, on a, on a given day, if the trail's in good shape, you know, you're moving three and a half miles an hour. So you go 10, 10 hours, you've gone 30 miles. Now, I average 38 miles a day on my trip. So um, what that probably averaged out to is about 18 or 19 hours of work on my feet every single day, all day. That's a and lot. And then four to five hours off my feet. But that doesn't mean sleep. Like a lot of people are like, oh, so you get four or five hours of sleep. No, <laughs> you're, you're messing with tons of gear. Your mind is thinking about checkpoints. You're checking your map to make sure you're on the right, you know, it's just, and then maybe you fall asleep and you get two hours of sleep. And so, you know, it's, uh, you take sleep when you can get it or when you're just falling asleep on your feet that you've been hiking so long that you're literally falling asleep on your feet, realizing you need to stop. And so that's how hard I burn every single day on the trail. And then, you know, if you wanted, and what does that all mean? Here's a picture. I started the race at 205 pounds. I finished the Iditarod as 169 pounds. Oh, man. That is wicked. <laughs> That's how hard I worked for, to do what I did out there. So, I, like, it's, it's, I, I'm very, I always want to make sure I don't paint some picture of what it's like out there, and it's just wonderful in this wilderness and beautiful mountains. It's, it is everything you have inside you to keep moving forward and to stay warm and to, and to, and to keep your water from freezing. So it's just, like I said, it's just, you simplify everything down to food, water, shelter, and you're not thinking about much else other than those things. And then there's your meditation. That's yeah. your walking meditation right there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So did you reach a point in this last race that you did finish? Did you reach a point where you thought, I'm not going to make it. I've got to stop. You ever get there? You know, I, there was never a point where I, where I didn't think I was going to make it. There, okay, how do I say this? There was many times where I was like, I don't think I can do this, right? Right. But thinking is different than what you can do, right? Like, you know, it's just thoughts, right? So, like, I, that was my mind. Like, I, and it's a battle when I do these things about, what, like, what's your mind talking about and what, what is your body capable of doing? And I think people have no clue. I think like your average person has no idea how far they could push themselves because they're not willing, you know, any discomfort and we're told that we need to stop and we need to fix it. And we, you know, you don't, it's not good to feel that. And I, I, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know? So, um, so I just, um, I, I just beat myself up so much out there and it just like, it took my, every single thing, I had inside me, whether spirituality or physicalness or mental or, or all these things, it took everything I had to finish this year. And, and I sit in awe. There's a guy that his name is Tim Hewitt and he's done this race. He has gone to Nome on foot nine times in his life since the year 2000. So I just, it boggles my mind that like I did it once and I was like, Oh, done. Like, like just, not even close to wanting to come back next year and do that again, <laughs> let alone do it nine times. I mean, talk about a, a different mentality. So there's just levels of people that, that know how to tell their mind to shut up. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I could see if a person weren't in a hurry. So I could see how it could be fun to do a thousand mile winter trek, but stay within yeah. your comfort zone every day and maybe do it. I don't know 
how long would it take to do it? A month, a six weeks, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say, you know? yeah, to, to, to take it real leisurely. And then maybe you'd even take a day off. Whoa. You know, and let your, <laughs> let your, let your body heal up a little bit. But here you, know, you are like, trying like, to win the thing. So how many days did it take you, did you say? 20, uh, 26 days, 13 hours, and 44 minutes, uh, you know, from, from start to finish. Wow. 26 days. Now, if you don't show up at a checkpoint, do they just assume, well, he's sleeping on the trail? I mean, is anyone ever yeah, looking that, for you, you know? No, no. I mean, more so these days there are because finally we're wearing trackers. When I started doing this race, we did not wear trackers. And I literally feel that the reason the Iditarod Trail Invitational now uses trackers is because my family bothered the race director so much that year <laughs> I was on the trail and they didn't know where I was on the trail. Right. And they, I mean, I, I have heard stories of how many times my sister called the race director and asked, you know, is he okay? We haven't heard from, you know, anyone and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, that was a little touch and go. And that, that really made a lot of nerves uh, different. But now we wear these spot trackers where people can see right so like for instance this year some guy got off track this year on a ra- um and he got like 20 something miles off track right well but the thing is is that whole that person's family and the race directors they're watching this blue dot going off the trail and going further away from the trail right so now all of a sudden you're thinking okay this guy is lost he's going the wrong way and we need to get him so this year i heard of um Someone that flew a plane, you know, everyone in like every other person in Alaska is a pilot, right? right? So it's like, you know, there's all these planes flying around, even though it's so cold and everything. But someone, someone flew over this person and dropped out the window, like something that flew down to, you know, made its way down, like, like, you know, like, and it was a note. It was more or less like a note, like, dude, turn around. You're going, to, you're, 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 you're going 20 miles in the wrong direction. You got to turn around. You're, you're going to, and, and then, you know, boom, to say something about this guy, man, he said, okay, he turned around. He went to 20 miles back and finished the race. I was like, man, nice. there's a lot of people that would just be like, all right, well have someone come get me on a snow machine. You know, now that you know where I am, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. So, so yeah, it's, um, yeah, but like, yeah, if you like, if you're going and going and going, and then all of a sudden you're not at a checkpoint, they're not they're not sending out a search party. Mm. You know, they're like, well, he's just taking time, he's catching up on his sleep or whatever. So, but I will say this year in a race called the Yukon Arctic Ultra, which is kind of a sister race, if you will, to the Iditarod, a guy got off track and then he didn't know where he was, and he made the killer mistake of taking his belt, his harness, and his sled off. And he left that somewhere, and then he went looking for the trail. So now he lost all his stuff. Oh, no. Not only that, but he decided that he was going to take his shoes off. And not only that, he decided he was going to take his gloves off. So the next day, and now, uh, granted, the sled with the tracker is right next to the trail. So everyone that's watching his dot is thinking that he's sleeping on the trail, whereas he is lost, has lost his shoes and his, because he's completely dehydrated. He doesn't. He's not making sound decisions, and one thing compounds another. Next thing you know, he's lost his gloves and his and, and his shoes. Luckily, the next day, someone happened to be flying over and sees this person circling around in circles. Sends someone down there, and his hands and feet are black. 
100% frostbitten. That guy lost his hands and his feet this year in the race. Oh, man. And so, um, I mean, it's that's what I mean. Like, the stakes are freaking high. And it's like for me to say, oh, well, that guy, may, no, things get unraveled and you don't make good decisions when you cannot drink enough and eat enough to have, you know, a strong mind. And so I can see how that can happen to somebody. Absolutely. And hypothermia causes that when your brain temperature drops, then your reasoning ability goes away. And it happens to a lot of people. Search and rescue and, and people. They start stripping away. Yeah. Right? They start like taking layers off because they have this false sense of, I, I don't know. I've, I've read a lot of the psychology of it, but it was like, man, this guy was, but I guess this guy was going around in circles screaming, thinking he's dying. I mean, obviously thinking that no one's going to find him and he's going to, he's going to die this way. Right. And then luckily someone flew over and, and, and put a rescue together. But I mean, good wow. Lord. I mean, That's tragic. Know, yeah, it really is. It, truly is so the stakes are incredibly high i i mean we get that we we've heard two stories here about how high the stakes are you've really got to know your stuff we're talking about extremely good at your outdoor skills and your outdoor winter skills or you shouldn't even think about a race like this you're talking about putting them into the arctic where it's that race started at minus 50 fahrenheit this year Mm. That's nuts. Well, man, go, you know, go do the 50 steps it takes before, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm just going to say, you know, one time I had to hike out of the, the woods in the winter with ice all over me and I had to hike deep into the night to get out to survive. And that was enough of an experience right there for me to just say, people, if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. Go get your go get your experience, you know. Mind your p's and q's. Or go with someone that that has experience, you know. Like go on a trip with that person, you know. Learn from them because, like in my realm with uh, with us adventurers that that have these skills, we're not hoarding these skills. No. We're not like we're not <laughs> saying, oh, I know how to do this and how to take care of myself. And too bad you don't. You have to learn on your own. Most every single person I've been around is an open book. Like, if someone's humble enough to ask how to go about stuff, you will give all your tricks that you've learned over all your hard years of, of screwing up, and then you want to present it to someone so they can make it better. So, like, be smart and use someone, you know, like, but just don't, you know, so many people I see that ego just take over, and, man, they want to prove that they can take on anything, you know, and do this, and, and I'm, getting, I'm just tough. I can't, and, and, boom, those are the ones that are just liabilities out there so yeah. yeah there's a big difference between certain races and i was i'm glad that i was a part of one that that betted a little bit more well i can say this much you know if you really want to prove that you can take on anything then you probably can but that means you gotta you gotta work up to it maybe do 50 Absolutely. marathons in 50 states and then get some adventure outdoor winter skills and then talk to someone that's lived in the arctic for 10 years and you know what i mean Absolutely. And, and yeah, and it's like, and I, when I see people take that path, it's so great because I'm telling you, it can be so rewarding when you have the skills to be efficient out there, right? Like you realize that you, you have your systems and your systems are backed up and right. you know how to take care of yourself. There, talk about a liberating feeling because then you realize you can go and you can put yourself in these situations. You know, and you can take care of yourself, and, and especially if you're with others, you can look out for each other. But, yeah, I just 
I see so much these days of just people that like, and it's just the same with like these entitled people that like, they don't want a starting job because they feel that they're better than that. Right. Mm. And it's like all these people that don't want to hit these rungs on the way to the success that they have. And I see it far too often. And, and in certain regards, that's why I'm kind of like, I'm moving away from some of these races because I'm just like, I don't want to really be a part of all this. You know, I'll just go do it on my own if I want to do it kind of thing. Hey, we all pay our dues, but here's the beauty of it, right? The beauty of it is that that's where the fun is. It's not necessarily finishing the marathon that is the only thing that this is about. It's about all the stuff that went into getting the ability to run a marathon and Whenever you're challenging yourself, and that might be a walk around the block, yes. but when you're challenging yourself and you overcome your limits and you grew as a person, then the reward is there. And if that takes you from a walk around the block to a thousand mile, like did or rod race in the wintertime, you know, then fantastic. But be where you are, you know, and be who you are. Yeah, but if it takes you from walking around the, the block to a 10K, yeah. heck yeah. I mean, good, you know, like. That's what I mean. Like, I, I, my Iditarod is, is my thing, but everyone has their thing, and, and you are spot on. And, and I can tell you've thought through these things because many things you've said, I've realized that you don't get to this understanding without putting yourself out in the situation, like you said. You know, and that's the, that's the fun part, you know. And, and to me, that's adventure of not knowing what's around the corner, and, but knowing that you'll be able to deal with yourself in a sound manner, you know, and not being a liability. And, I mean, look at me. I'm a family man. I mean, I have a beautiful wife and two daughters. I want to be around for them. I want right. to be a grandpa, dang it. You know, it's like I'm going to learn every skill I can to where I can return home after adventures like this. And so it's uh, – and obviously it's touch and go, but I, I was looking for that line, you know, and I, I think I, I – I, <laughs> I found it. I found that dang line. And I, now I'm kind of, you know, um, moving on a little bit from that, that type of adventure. Yep. All right. Well, Pete, we got to hear what it was like to cross the finish line after a thousand miles, find out you really are in first place and that you've done it. What was that like? Well, it's, I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, I grew up reading about the Iditarod and reading the stories of Balto and then learning about Jack London and learning about all these awesome authors. And so, you know, I, I had been well-versed in this, and obviously I'm into the psychology of things. I'm into the deeper things. And so I, every, and I have tons of Iditarod friends, right? Like I lived up there in Randogs for a while. I have many, many mushing friends. And anyone that's been to Nome in the, in the sled dog race, I would always ask them, okay, what was it like when you got to Cape Nome and you look out and all of a sudden you see those lights of Nome? Like, what, tell me, you know, I'm always like picking their brains. Tell me what you feel. And, you know, there, some would say I start bawling, crying. There's others that say that they actually turn around and, and don't want to finish because they've become at such peace with themselves on the trail but they know the finish means going back to their other world, mm. if you will. Wow. And so I was always loved these stories about this, right? And then I always would picture when I got to know him because that was, dang it, that was my goal. And I thought for a long time it would be as a, you know, on a sled team and as a musher, but that didn't pan out. And so here I found myself, you know, um, and like knowing that it's going to be on foot and, all these thousands of times I thought what I'm going to say, who I'm going to thank, how I'm going to act, um, how emotional I'll be. And I just kind of knew because I just know myself. So it's like, 
And oh my goodness, it was a 180 degree difference than what I thought it'd be. It was like, I literally could, I got, first of all, a friend of mine and his friend who I had never met were the only two people at the finish line. Mm. This was at four, this was at four thirty in the morning. If my friend wouldn't have woken up and came out, know, come out knowing that I was finishing and film it, nobody would have been at the finish line of this <laughs> adventure for me. And I just think that's incredible. I mean, what an incredible adventure. And then, and, and then obviously the people that are after it aren't after it for all the glory because that's what we get to look forward to. Now, I won the race, right? Now, the guy that won the Iditarod Sled Dog Race, he's instant fame. He won, I think, 60, like, no. $65,000 and then like a $65,000 Dodge truck, like all tricked out Dodge truck. And wow. then, uh, boom, you're, you're talking, you walk into sponsors, you go do speaking events, you, you know, you, it's, it's, you've made your, your name for yourself for the rest of your life. What did I win for winning the Iditarod Trail Invitational? I won a finisher patch that I can put on a jacket. <laughs> I, I got a, a, a T-shirt, like a, a finisher T-shirt. And then for winning, I got a homemade Iditarod coffee mug that says ITI champion on it. That's what I won for winning the Iditarod Trail Invitational 1,000 mile race. Oh, Pete, that's so, hilarious, man. That is. People love that. People love that story. They, they get a kick out of it. I don't get a kick out of it so much because I'm like, man, I wish it wasn't such a discrepancy. But at the same time, as you can already know, I'm not lying when I say this. I did. That was not what I wanted out of this whole Iditarod. I, you know, it was that five years of plotting and failing and finishing, and what that meant to me internally. Right. And as far as like what you know, everything else is is, is just different. It doesn't matter to me. Like that experience was what I was after, and obviously because I'm doing that race and knowing that there's no fanfare. Now, is it changing a little bit? Yes. Have I gotten, like, am I doing this interview now? Heck yeah, and it's incredible, and I'm pinching myself. But, like, it wasn't always that way for me, you know? And so, like, I'm the same person five years ago, you know what I mean, as far as my ego is not attached to this stuff. So, it's again, I don't look at myself any different than the next outdoorsman. Like, this was an internal thing that I am just massively so happy that I'm done with, and I actually... I actually finished. I, I cannot believe. And then to win it, I mean, that was just like, I, that's just like, you got to be kidding me. You know, like, I mean, that's just like, you could, if you would have told me that five years ago, I would have laughed in your face. Like, you know, if you were to say, you know, when I'm having the 92 two pound sled and I'm lost, if you were to come up to me and say, in five years, you're going to be the Iditarod champion. I would have, I would have literally thought, thought of you as like Chris Farley. Like, I mean, like this, just no reality. <laughs> and it's like, I, and, and to know what I've been through and then to know where I am now, it's just, it's just a spiritual path. And it's one I love sharing. Um, and, and I love uh, inspiring others by it because I, I feel like people can get some things from, from my past. And, 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 and it's not this like, yeah, check me out. 26 and a half days, first place champion. It's like, no, I love speaking to all the whole process, you know? So it's, probably a little bit different than most athletes well and you do that too you're a public speaker and you right. you have a slideshow that you share about this you can be a motivational speaker i think you do good good as a keynote speaker um 
so anyway, that's a that's something that you're willing to do is to get out there and and try to encourage people to find their own Iditarod, whatever that is, right? And, and I, I mean, honestly, just hearing you say that gives me a, like, yes, that's exactly. I mean, that to a T. That's what I'm trying to 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 put out to people so they understand that. And 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 you know, and then once they once they get to a point where they sit back and go, boy, five years ago. I didn't think I could go around my block. You know how many stories I've heard like that of people? I mean, mm-hmm. thousands upon tens of thousands of stories of, of people that have said, I, like when I started, I never thought I'd, I'd do this and look at what I'm doing now. And I'm always like, well, stop for a dang second and look at where you've come from, please. Because I don't, you know, a lot of runners are, okay, I finished this. Now I got to do this. And it's like, I always stop people and say, look at that path. And once you stop and look at where you've come from, that's the beauty. And that's where life is out there. Not in any of these reality shows or in any of these fake magazines and all this. Like, you know, I'll let the masses go that way. But I know I know what I get out of this stuff and, and the type of people that are attracted to these things. And this is my life. I'm in bed with this for the rest of my life because this is who the people I want to be around. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, what's next? You said, hey, I finished this one, so I can now say I'm done, but what's next? Well, you know, um, I'm running Leadville on Saturday. What are we at? It's Monday now. This Saturday, I'm heading out to Colorado to run Leadville. So it's like, it's almost like I'm going back to to who I was before all the Iditarod stuff took place, right? right? It's like, I'm, I'm an ultra runner. That's who I am. And I'm a family man. So I like, you know, going to baseball games with my families and taking my dogs on a hike. You know, it's just like I don't – I'm not in a position – like a lot of people will say what's next, and they go, well, you should go climb Everest. No, I don't want to climb Everest. Like, <laughs> like I just, 0% of me wants to go climb Everest. I look at that as a very ego-driven endeavor as well. And so I was like, if I were to go climb a big mountain, it would, it would be one that was like three mountains away from Everest. That's huge. But no one knows that the name of it, and no one. There's no fanfare, and I would go have the same experience that the people climbing Everest would. But I would do it on a no-name peak, and that would just be the type of stuff. So, but I have to give you a little bit of meat here. I do have one trip that I still see as something that I'd like to do, and that's I would like to climb. I still have yet to climb Denali. I told you I was a big mountaineer before um, the Iditarod. And then I have to climb and I have to uh, traverse the uh, Denali numerous times in the Iditarod. And I just, as a, as a man like me, I want I want to get to the highest point of the country that I I'm raised in. So it's always been a dream of mine to climb Denali. But not only that, but I want to telemark ski down it too. Mm. So I, I I think I think of this awesome like kind of expedition style mountaineering of you know where you're hauling your skis and you're maybe doing a couple trips up and down to to haul gear and whatnot but then getting to the top and just you know and just opening it up and skiing down so that's something i'd like to do is that going to be anytime soon i doubt it i mean there's a it's another thing that i'm going to work towards but right now i'm just totally enjoying life i love public speaking and sharing my story i'm really trying to to do better with that and put more energy into that because i enjoy it and then I just, I don't think you, and I've said this already in this interview, I don't think you can top from an adventure standpoint what I just did. And I don't say that from an ego perspective. I say that from a reality of what I've seen. 
um, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there's something else huge out there waiting for me, and it's, and it's something that will come up. But right now, I'm very content just being who I am and just being with my family and, and going to run ultras. And, and it's like when I go run Leadville, I'll just be right in the crowd, you know? I mean, no one will know me from everybody else in the race, and that's why I love it, you know? So it's like, it's fun. So I go, I'm just, I'm just another racer in these races, you know? And so it's, uh, it's exciting, and, and it's just, um, and it's what I love to do. Again, it's just throwing myself out in the mountains. And so I'm a mountain man. I love adventure. I love sharing it with friends, and, and I'm just trying to live for the day, like we both talked about, for, the, for this moment, you know? Mm, very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Adventure Sports Podcast and sharing with us what the experience was like of working up to the Iditarod and then finally completing it and winning it. Amazing stories. Congratulations again. And thanks so much for your time. Uh, I'm honored to be on your show. And thanks for having me, Kurt. Oh, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, you know, it may not be a thousand mile run in Alaska in the wintertime. That may not be your thing, or it might be your thing, but whatever it is, I say this at the close of every show. Find a goal. Find something that you want to do, and then start pursuing it because the benefits are limitless. Get out there and have some fun. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.